For some time as we've uh, taken the Lord's Supper together, we've been in the Gospel of John and moving through, and then over the last few months on Family Sundays, we've directed our attention to the Gospel of John. But it's really been since October, uh, Zach Potts preached for us from the end of chapter 15, chapter 15, uh, verses 18 through the end of the chapter there. And so I want to kind of reframe that for us, uh, bring back to mind those things that some of us might have forgotten uh, as we have an opportunity to look at this passage today. And so, you know, it's, it's this great teaching that really, in some sense, uh, Jesus is continuing to move in the hearts of the disciples to prepare them for his departure and to give them this keep it of information that is intended to help them persevere. It's amazing how knowing something ahead of time helps us uh, to make good decisions. It helps us to uh, know how to handle difficult situations, difficult circumstances. This summer, my family had an opportunity to go to Branson, and so we just took a little time away, and while we were up there, we decided to go to Silver Dollar City, which uh, was interesting. And so... Anyway, and so we're there, and while we're there, Valerie's off with our three-year-old playing, doing some age-appropriate things, and I take the bigger boys, and we're going to go ride their first roller coaster. And they have this app there that tells you, like, who who the ride is appropriate for and how tall you have to be, and I'm like, check, check, check. (laughs) And so we're standing in line, and these three ladies come up behind us, and, (laughs) you know, they just say, have you, uh... You ever read this? You ever ridden this ride before? I'm like, no, you know, we've actually driven up from, uh, from Texas. And they said, oh, okay. Uh, your kids ride many roller coasters? I was like, no, this is actually this is their, this is their first one. They said, oh, okay. And they said, okay, in such a way to let me know they're judging my parenting, like at this point. <laughs> and so I said, oh, uh, why do you ask? And they said, well, it's probably a good thing from the line that you can't really see the ride. And now I'm judging my parenting. <laughs> Right, and so we, we get up there, and uh, the way that it works, Bryce is actually going to ride with one of them. So Graham and I go over, and we sit down in the roller coaster, and I'm saying, all right, buddy, grab the deal. We're just going to pull it down. They're going to come and, and check to make sure it's latched down. You can't get out of this thing. It's great. It's going to hold you, and it's going to keep you safe. We're going to be secure for this ride. So he's a little nervous, right? He should be. And so uh, we get in there, and, and the ride goes forward maybe 10, 20 feet, and then the whole roller coaster shifts to the left, and like we are loaded in the barrel, uh, just to kind of use that metaphor. And, and I'm just thinking, this is a bad idea. <laughs> like, it's too late. <laughs> Give me up! That's what I wanted to yell, and I didn't. Brave face, hey, buddy, this is going to be so much fun. This is going to be great. No, it's going to go fast right when it starts. I didn't know, but, but it did. And so it just these lights flash, and the sound comes off, and it, we're off like a bullet. I mean, just shot straight out of the barrel. And I look over, and what was glee and delight is terror and fright. <laughs> he just, about the time his breath caught up to him and his voice returned to him, you got to get me off this thing, stop it, this isn't fun, I want off this thing. And I'm like, well, you know, hey, can, we, can you stop the ride? You know, so we can't do that. And so I'm trying to reassure him in the middle of this, and it's stuff like this, we won't die. <laughs> it's safe. People want to be scared, and that's what we're doing, <laughs> being terrified. And so I, I recognize that all the things I could say to him in the midst of this aren't really going to make it better, but maybe they'll distract him. And so the ride 
finishes and he just says, I'm not doing that again. People want that? What's wrong with them? And I'm sure he's looking at me, what's wrong with you? But, you know, say we'd been in the line and I said, look, this is going to be the most terrifying thing you've ever experienced. We're going to go at breakneck pace. We're going to bend to the right, bend to the left, go up, come down. You're going to fly up. You're going to float for a moment. Your breath is going to leave your body and you're going to be so terrified that tears of blood are going to pour out. He'd say, well, I, can, we, can we go ride the carousel? So I didn't know any of those things, right? And so sometimes we end up in the midst of situations we're just completely unprepared for because we've not been informed to how to make good decisions and to how to adjust in the midst of this. In some sense, this is what Jesus is doing. So we recognize that when we remember the provision of Jesus, when we remember the things that he has done for us, the things he has prepared for us, then we are prepared when we endure the persecution of the world. So when we reflect, when we remember, when we recall the provision of Jesus, he has set our hearts to endure the persecution from the world. Now, the passage Zach preached for us is exactly this. It's establishing this fact. Jesus comes to the disciples. He's broken the bread for them. In John 13, he's washed their feet. They've shared this meal, and he's prepared them for his departure. And then in John 15, he wants them to understand that they're not going to be well-received. They're not going to be liked. And he starts off this way. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And so what we see is Jesus moving towards the cross and the disciples over here getting ready to endure the persecution, the ostracism of the world. And what we see is Jesus teaching that these things will intersect. So the more our lives look like Jesus, the more the world brings hatred and animosity and persecution and ostracism to us. So the more aligned, the more our lives move towards Jesus, the greater the persecution and the ostracism for the world impacts us in our lives. Jesus gave these words to the disciples in 15 and verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. So there should be no great surprise for us when you tell someone you're a Christian and they go elsewhere for friendships. There should be no surprise for us when we stand for the word, when we stand for Jesus and we are mocked or we are abused or we are ostracized. Jesus wants them to be this, uh, this, this staunch base for Christianity. He wants them to stand strong. So he begins in verse 1 of chapter 16. He says, I have said all of these things to you. You're going to be hated. You're going to be derided. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be kicked out. You're going to be completely set apart. I've said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is... This is the difficulty. It is shocking for us in our sensibility when we are ridiculed on the basis of our faith. It's difficult. It's difficult when we, when we open up to a family member, or our spouse, or our child, or our cousin, or our distant relative, and we share this good thing Jesus has done in us, and we receive animosity from them. We receive disinterest from them. This thing that we know stands the opportunity of, of permanently affecting and altering for all eternity their eternal destination. And we know its importance. And when we offer it, when we extend it, when we live it, it is met with disdain. 
And Jesus says, don't lose heart in the midst of this. Now, Jesus is equipping them and telling them this word prior to the garden. Now, in Mark chapter 14, he records this, this brief garden encounter. And he tells them this word in Mark 14, that when they are there, in verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, listen to this, you will all fall away. He's talking to the guys, and he's got them there, and they've had this intimate gathering, and he knows the soldiers are coming, and he knows how hard it's going to be. He says, you will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go up before you to Galilee. And Peter's bold profession, though they all fall away, I never will. To be a Christian is to suffer difficulty. To be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to suffer ridicule. To identify with Jesus is to separate yourself from the world in such a way that the world does not understand. It cannot get it. And in those moments, we reflect upon his word. Notice that Jesus doesn't say in those moments what you need to do is just kind of grin and bear it. That in those moments that what you need to do is just tough it out. That in those moments just constantly be running through some mantra to say their words don't matter, their words don't matter, their words don't matter. That in that moment what keeps us steadfast and secure is the testimony of the Spirit inside of us saying remember the words of Jesus, remember the life of Jesus, remember that to be identified with him as our master means that we welcome and receive persecution because it unites our identity to Jesus. I've written these things, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And what he wants to do next is to begin to dress it and, and, and let them see how this is going to work out within a first century context. So verse 2, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Now, already within the Gospel of John, we have seen played out what it looked like for someone to confess Jesus is the Christ. In John chapter 9, there's this amazing uh, account of Jesus visiting with this man who is born blind. And his disciples pass by, and Jesus gives them some amazing instructions. He's to go and take and, and put mud in his eyes, and then he would be healed. And so the guy's healed, and everybody knew him as the guy who'd always been blind, the guy who'd never seen. And so when he shows up, everybody in his community, everybody from his neighborhood is just floored. Because who he is has fundamentally been altered and changed in an instant. And so they're not sure what to do, so they take him to the scribes and Pharisees, and they bring him before them, and then they want to know how this thing has come about. How has this thing been affected? How has your sight been restored? And so this guy, he doesn't know any better, but he begins to testify to the goodness of Jesus. Look, I don't know who he is. I don't know where he came from. I don't know where he went, but he gave me my sight. I want to follow him. So the Pharisees, the scribes, they look at it and they say, look, we know what's going on here. You aren't really blind. You weren't really blind. This is some crazy story concocted to increase his followers. You weren't really blind. Call the boy's parents. Call the boy's parents. Let's bring them here and, 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 and let us know 
what's going on. So they bring the parents. They say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents have to make a decision at this point. They can disown their son. They can own his healing. But in owning his healing, they run the risk of being completely segregated, completely kicked out of their synagogue, their community, their way of life, their very existence. So they take a middle way. His parents answer in verse 20, and they say, we know that this is our son that he, and that he was born blind. They stick to the facts. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, for he is of age, and he'll speak for himself. And the passage goes on, it says, they said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, because the Jews had already said that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he's to be put out of the synagogue. His parents kick it back over to him and say, you need to ask him. We, we just don't know. Synagogue was the very hub of their life. Imagine that all of your friends and all of the people you know and all of your neighbors suddenly wanted nothing to do with you. This is what they ran the risk of losing. They would be nobody in the community. They would be persona non grata at every gathering. They would not be welcome. They would not be engaged. They would not be talk to. So they turn to the son and they begin to ask him. And I want us to just look at his words really quickly, starting in verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, speaking of Jesus. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. He's testifying to the greatness of Jesus. At the risk of losing all. When given an opportunity to stand up and talk about the fundamental transformation that faith in Jesus has affected in his life, he throws caution and care to the wind and he radically speaks of Jesus. They answer him. They said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And so they cast him out. If we speak for Jesus, if we stand for Jesus, you run the risk of losing everything. And it's worth it. You run the risk of losing family, of losing home, of losing job, of losing life, of losing everything. And he's absolutely worth it. And I tell you this, to be a Christian puts you in a place where you can make no other choice. You can make no other, uh, 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 other path for your life. Because every opportunity we have to choose for Jesus or to choose for something easier, to choose for something easier means that we are separating ourselves from him. So Jesus' words to the disciples is, don't be separated from me. Remember my words. And this is why it's so critically important for them to understand prior to the dispersal, prior to the armed guards getting there, and prior to Jesus being carried away, that he knew in that moment that they would betray him. But still he was with them. Still he talks about his ministry after his resurrection. 
that Jesus, if he has marked you for salvation, if you have united yourself with him in faith, then no temporary setback through your lack of faithfulness to him will fundamentally alter your destination. He desires for you to be faithful, and his spirit will make you so. So you're going to be put out of the synagogues. And then there's this time coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Now, this word service here could also be rendered worship. So this is the the great kind of perversion and twisting of this. The, The Jews, when they persecuted the Christians, didn't look at it and say, oh, these guys are like us but slightly different. So it's okay and we can tolerate them. Or we should tolerate them. Or we're doing something wrong when we persecute them. They saw in their persecution of Christians worship to God. Right, orthodox, true worship to God. And this is the great perversion. This is the great twisting of God's truth. That they saw themselves moving as a friend to God. John records in John 12, 10 that after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that some of the, 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 the religious authorities had set out and put a bounty on his head and endeavored to put him to death because they saw it as right worship to God. They didn't want Jesus to grow in notoriety. They didn't want him to grow in fame. They wanted him to suffer. They wanted him to die. And they wanted Christianity to fail. Now He gives us this important note here in verse 3. He says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor have they known me. So all through chapter 15 and chapter 14, we've seen Jesus unite himself to the Father, say, I and the Father are one. That there's no having Jesus and not having the Father, or having the Father but not having Jesus. To have one is to have both. We recognize our God dwells in Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they dwell in harmony in perfect fullness, three gods in one. But what we see is is the Jews and others are moving forward in ignorance, seeing themselves as a protector of truth. So after the resurrection in Acts chapter 6, we see that Stephen begins to stand up and he begins to serve and he has this amazing sermon that he speaks. And so Stephen's there, and he's speaking boldly of the Lord, and they take him, and they bring him in. They bring him before the elders and the scribes, and, and, and before them, he has another chance to deny Jesus or to speak for him. And so he begins to speak, and he does so mightily. And Acts chapter 7 records the beauty of what he said. I want you to see how far he went. Stephen's standing there facing incredible opposition, facing incredible difficulty, continues to speak. Verse 51, he said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. to, To which of you did our fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received laws delivered by the angels and did not keep it. So he's blistering them for getting it wrong. He's pointing out all the ways they failed, all the ways that they have moved to be in direct opposition to God. Look at verse 54. We see the response of them. 
It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their feet, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this is the situation. You've got Stephen there, and he has every opportunity to curse them, every opportunity to turn against Jesus. And he stands, he gazes at heaven, and he is stoned. And one of the number who heard his sermon, who saw the response of the priests, was this guy standing to the side named Saul. Saul is this this eager uh, adversary to the Christian church. He desires to bring Christianity to a soon and to a quick end. And so he travels with, with a letter to head to the church and to bring an end to this way, to drag men and women into prison. But what we see in chapter 8 is that this one who stood at the, the martyrdom of the first Christian is gloriously transformed, is gloriously renewed as he encounters Jesus. While he's traveling on the, on the way to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Let that question hang. Saul saw himself on a mission from God to bring about an end of Christianity. But when the God of all the heavens speaks to him, He doesn't recognize his voice. But in mercy and tenderness, God awakens life in him. He tells him to rise and enter the city. This is what is said of Saul just a few short verses later. It says that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What Saul did in ignorance, God awakened his heart to his waywardness and to how his belief was perverted and wrong. And he awakens him and puts true life into Saul. And who is an early persecutor of the church becomes one who would go on to write over half of the New Testament. This is the amazing change and profound translation of faith that our God can affect in each of our hearts. We come back into verse 4. And he says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. It's a stunning thing. Jesus never once guarantees us a life free of incident. He never once promises that everything will be great in our life. He never once tells us that our life will be smooth, that our our bellies will be full, that our homes will be warm. 
All of these things are hopes and desires and dreams that we have inserted and hope to be true for ourselves, but friend, they are not the gospel. We've been given every indication in Scripture that to identify with Jesus is to suffer. Why would we expect it to be different? And why would we hope that it would be? Why would we hope that it would be? We're hoping against something that moves us further away from Jesus and not closer to his heart. The fantastic thing is that Jesus' words here in John chapter 16, when he says that it is their hour that comes, he's talking about all those who would stand against him and all those who would hang him on the cross. But this is the fantastic thing that our God does. He takes their hour the hour when the enemies of God think they finally arrive and they finally finish Christianity and he converts their hour to his own. Jesus was always headed to the cross. And as they seek to drag him there, what they fail to recognize is that he willingly puts himself there so that their hour becomes his hour, so that his hour becomes our redemption. Let me finish with these words from the Gospel of Luke. Luke's telling of the Beatitudes, Luke 6, 22 and 23. Jesus speaking, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you. Today, as you stand for Jesus, blessed are you when people hate you. Today, as you stand for Jesus, blessed are you when they exclude you. Today, As you stand for Jesus, blessed are you when they revile you. Today, as you stand for Jesus, blessed are you when they spurn your name is evil on account of the Son of Man. And this is our charge. Rejoice. When you're slandered, when you're hated, when you're beaten, when you're mocked, when they kill you and threaten to take your life, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for their fathers did to the prophets. Oh, that God would unite us. That God would help us to see that the provision laid for us in Jesus is enough to sustain us when we face the persecution of this world. Let me pray for us as we begin to turn our hearts to taking the supper together. Father, we thank you for your word, for its power, for its clarity. Father, I pray that that you would help us to stand boldly, that you would not help us to faint in fear. God, I thank you that today we get to take the supper together this ordinance that you've given the church, that just as baptism presents the door to the church, so the table makes us one body as we take the bread and the cup together. So God, you allow us to proclaim this, you allow us to take part in this, that we are set apart, that we are set unto your path, your guidance, your word. God, I pray for those that came in heavy burdened. You would help them to lay those down. Father, I pray.
for us that you would help us to recognize the significance of what we do in taking the Lord's Supper. The proclamation of Christ's death and his return. God, would you make us one as we take of the Lord's Supper together? And would you make us strong as we remember the word of your son, Jesus? And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.